The Strange But True story featured on this podcast contains details some people may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Chayaz Samuel and things are about to get weird. Hello, a very warm welcome back to Things Are About To Get Weird, episode 47, can you believe it? We are getting closer and closer to our 50th instalment, and for that one I'm planning to cover what is definitely the most requested story I've had so far. I'm going to keep you guessing on that one for now, but needless to say, it's going to be fascinating. As is the tale I have for you today. It's been a good few weeks since I covered a true crime case, and when I started reading about this incident, it went straight to the top of my list. However, exactly where this case falls under the true crime umbrella is still somewhat of a mystery. It's very much up for debate, and there are still lots of elements of this story that are unexplained. This episode is all about Karen Silkwood, and it is absolutely bizarre. As you know, I'm not a big one for conspiracy theories, but in this case, I feel like there are a huge number of unclear and suspicious details that will really leave you questioning parts of the findings. But almost exactly 49 years ago to the day that some of these events occurred, I still think it's important to discuss and remember. So we're going to get started, but not before I say that if you can hear the sounds of a storm going on outside, it's because there's a storm going on outside. We're dealing with a little something called Storm Debbie here in the UK, and it's out there, there's nothing I can do, I just hope you can't hear it too much, so fingers crossed. I'll do everything I can in the edit so that hopefully you can't hear it too much, but there might be the odd rumble from time to time. Anyway, let's get into the story. On the night of the 13th of November 1974, authorities in the US state of Oklahoma were alerted to a single car collision which had happened on the east side of State Highway 74. They'd received a call at around 8.05pm reporting that a white Honda Civic looked to have swerved off the road, hitting a concrete culvert with considerable force. There appeared to be no other vehicles involved, and when police arrived at the scene, they found just one casualty. The driver of the crashed car, 28-year-old Karen Silkwood. Despite the efforts of the first responders, it was clear that the multiple injuries Karen had sustained were just too severe to survive, and tragically, she was pronounced dead at the scene. Now, unsurprisingly, an autopsy was ordered after Karen's death to try and work out exactly what had happened to her. After all, there was no immediate sign of any other car or obstruction which could have caused her to veer off the road so sharply. And although she did have some health issues, which we'll come on to shortly, it wasn't anything which could have caused an immediate loss of control whilst driving. And from the moment her body began to be examined things started to take one strange turn after the next. Initially, the Oklahoma State Trooper who had investigated the crash concluded that Karen's death had been the result of her falling asleep at the wheel, one of the most common reasons for a single vehicle accident occurring. 
early tests showed that she had a significant quantity of methaqualone in her bloodstream. This was a drug then sold under the brand name Quaaludes, often shortened to Ludes, which you might just recognise if you've seen the film The Wolf of Wall Street. It's that discontinued hypnotic sedative which was eventually withdrawn from the market because it was so addictive and widely misused, something which was very much explored in the film by Leonardo DiCaprio and Jonah Hill's characters in particular. At this time though, in the mid-70s, it was a prescription drug that could be legally handed out by doctors. After it was found that Karen had ingested quaaludes prior to her death, it was determined that the sedative effect of them must have caused her to fall asleep whilst driving. But this cut-and-dried conclusion was not destined to remain unchallenged for long, because when the full results from her autopsy were released, certain facts emerged that, although they weren't a surprise to those who knew her, were hugely shocking to the public and the media alike. Karen Silkwood's body, her lungs in particular, were contaminated with a significant amount of the radioactive element plutonium, enough so that it was virtually guaranteed that she would develop cancer. As Dr. John Goffman later testified, quote, anyone exposed to that amount of plutonium is married to lung cancer. It is then an inevitable process. Understandably, after this information was revealed, a million questions were raised, and to even begin to answer them, we have to head back a couple of years to 1972. It was at this point in the early 70s that, after divorcing her husband, Karen had moved from her native Texas to Oklahoma, and had landed a job at the Kerr-McGee Plutonium Fuels Production Plant. The factory was located not too far from the city of Crescent, and she worked as a chemical technician involved in the making of plutonium pellets. I'm sure it pretty much goes without saying, but this was a position that carried a certain amount of risk with it, and Karen was all too aware of the importance of health and safety procedures within her workplace. She was clearly a very intelligent person. She'd studied medical technology at Lamar State College, and had earned her entry into the institution via a scholarship from the Business and Professional Women's Club. Not too long after arriving at Kermagee, Karen decided to join the Oil, Chemical and Atomic Workers Union, and quickly became involved in much of their activity relating to her employer. Not only did she participate in the union strikes against Kermagee, but she actually became the very first female member of the bargaining committee. As part of this, she was assigned to investigate health and safety standards at the plant on behalf of the union. By this point, it was 1974, and what Karen was about to uncover would end up not only changing the course of her life, but many believe it would play a part in the story of her untimely death too. During her investigation, she reportedly found evidence of not only spills and leaks, which, given that they were working with dangerous materials, was very serious indeed, but also of plutonium going missing. In the summer of 1974, Karen decided that she could not keep quiet about what she'd observed any longer, and felt strongly that the safeguards put in place by her employer weren't working as they should. 
Along with other union members, she testified before the Atomic Energy Commission about the safety breaches. And one key element of this was her belief that some workers had been exposed to and contaminated by plutonium. And here, events start to take a drastic and incredibly weird turn. On the 5th of November, just days before she died, Karen underwent a routine test at the end of her workday to check for any plutonium contamination, something which I'm sure she was eager to keep on top of in light of her serious concerns about safety standards. The test immediately threw up a positive result. Karen had plutonium-239 on her hands, which was extra alarming as she had been working with the material via what should have been the safety of a glove box. If you're not familiar with a glove box in lab terms, it's essentially a sealed container housing a material that a technician would not want to be directly exposed to, but that they can handle through special gloves that are sealed into the box. That way, the idea is that the environment is safe and controlled, and that the person is totally physically separate from whatever they're handling. But here's the thing, even though the right side of Karen's body showed around 400 times the authorised limit of plutonium contamination, tests showed that the gloves she had been using had no holes in them. However, there were plutonium traces found inside them where her hands had been. But this made no sense because the pellets she'd been handling could not have come into contact with the insides of the gloves. So where did the material come from? And how did it end up on her hands? Karen was taken to the company's health physics office where she was decontaminated. And she also had a nasal swab taken. Bizarrely, this swab also returned a positive result, although it was not as extreme as the one from her hands. There was no plutonium found on any of the surfaces in the room she'd been working in, nor in the air. The health team at the plant wanted to keep track of her exposure though, and they asked her for urine and faecal samples which would be monitored for five days to check on the plutonium levels in her body. That same evening, after her decontamination, she returned to her duties until the early hours of the morning, but didn't do any further work in the glove box. She tested herself once more before leaving the plant that night and showed no signs of contamination. After arriving at work the next morning, she once again avoided the glove boxes, just doing paperwork instead, but before heading out to a meeting, she decided to test herself once more just to be on the safe side. To her bewilderment, the tests were once again positive. There was plutonium contamination detected on the right side of her face and neck, as well as her forearm. Again, she was decontaminated, but the next day was doomed to be even stranger. On November the 7th, at around 7.50am, Karen was tested by the health physics office and the medical staff were stunned. Her results showed extremely high levels of alpha activity, both on her body and in her urine and faecal samples. The rates were particularly high in her nostrils, indicating that she had possibly been ingesting the plutonium that way. But once again, things just didn't add up. It soon became even weirder though, as both her locker and her car were tested for traces of the radioactive substance and nothing was discovered. Utterly perplexed, 
Health workers from the plant visited the apartment that Karen shared with a colleague of hers named Sherry Ellis, who worked as a lab analyst. They began to test different areas of the apartment for plutonium contamination, and their findings were shocking. The bathroom and kitchen had high levels of alpha activity, but it was also found on everything from food in the fridge to traces on Karen's bedsheets. Naturally, she was asked how she thought this could have happened, and she recalled that she had accidentally spilled some of the urine samples she had produced that morning. Although she had cleared it up, she accepted that other surfaces and items in her apartment could have been affected by it, given that the activity levels found in the sample were so prominent. In light of all of this, the testing that Karen had been undergoing was now also extended to her boyfriend, Drew Stevens, and of course, her roommate, Sherry. Although it was found that they both harboured some low levels of plutonium contamination, it was significantly less than the levels found in Karen. Around the 11th of November, she raised concerns with the doctor who had been in contact with the trio, the leader of the laboratory health division, Dr. George Voles, that this exposure could have lasting damaging effects on her. She told him that she was worried it would affect her ability to have children, or in the worst case scenario, cause cancer or premature death. He essentially assured her, though, that in his opinion, everything would be fine. But Karen was incensed, and understandably so. She couldn't understand how this had happened to her, but knew that the root cause was obviously something that was happening at her place of work. Now, in the midst of all this chaos, her work for the union had not slowed down. In fact, it had only made her more determined to expose the safety breaches she had come across at Kerr-McGee, and it seems that she had quite the haul of evidence. And here we come full circle back to the evening of the 13th of November, when Karen was involved in that fatal collision whilst driving. Get this. Around 7pm that night, she had just left a union meeting in Crescent. Later, a fellow attendee confirmed that during the meeting, Karen had a binder and a number of documents in her possession, which she took with her to her car afterwards. And it's where she was travelling to after this gathering that makes what happened next feel even more bizarre. Feeling like she was getting nowhere in her efforts to bring about change at the plant, she felt that she had no other option than to turn full whistleblower. Karen had contacted a journalist from the New York Times, David Burnham, telling him that she had solid proof that the working conditions at Kerr-McGee were unsafe. It had been David Burnham, along with a representative from her union's national office, that she had been en route to meet on the 13th of November, and the evidence she is believed to have had with her sounds pretty damning. According to a Time report from back in 1979, a lawyer for the Silkwood family named Gerald Spence claimed that Karen was carrying a mountain of proof in the papers she had with her in the car that night. The article stated, quote, Silkwood wanted to tell the public that a startling 40 pounds of plutonium was missing from the plant. Spence also said that she had x-rays of fuel rods that had been retouched by the company to conceal faulty seals. Her point? A defective rod could cause a catastrophic accident. But, 
these papers were never to be recovered because when police arrived at the scene of Karen's car crash, no folders, binders or documents were found amongst the wreckage. Not a single paper. And that's not all. Now, bear in mind that this is all alleged. This is information I've gathered from very public sources, which I will cite at the end of this episode. But nevertheless, in my opinion, it is very compelling. A private investigation which was carried out after the crash found some suspicious physical evidence on and around Karen's car, which appeared to indicate that her accident may not have happened exactly how investigators had portrayed it. Firstly, fresh dents were found on the rear bumper of her Honda Civic, which was confusing as the crash had happened head-on. So why would there be damage to the back of her car? Those who knew Karen confirmed that these dents had not been present on her car prior to the 13th of November. It was a new vehicle and she'd claimed nothing on her insurance, again helping to show that any damage must have been very recent. Her family and friends voiced their opinion that a second car must have been present and had forced Karen off the road by ramming her bumper from behind. There were actually paint chips found on the bumper which must have come from another vehicle. Additionally, the private investigation also showed that there were skid marks from her car on the road, indicating that Karen might have tried to get back onto the road after veering or being pushed off. But these odd extra alleged details don't end there. In that 1979 Time article I mentioned earlier, references were made to some other suspicious elements of the direct aftermath of the car crash that definitely made me think. The piece suggests that a tow truck was initially dispatched to the incident by police and was then swiftly called back for reasons unknown. It also notes that personnel from Kerr-McGee were on the scene of the crash within minutes. Now, this article was published at a time when Karen's family, most notably her father Bill, was suing Kerr-McGee for negligence. Because her death had been ruled an accident and the result of a single car collision by the police, her loved ones felt their only option was to go down the route of suing the company for Karen's exposure to dangerous levels of plutonium, as this is where the bulk of the evidence was and it seemed the most likely route for getting some form of justice for her. And it's due to this trial that we know about the defence case that Kerr-McGee put forward in an attempt to explain how her plutonium contamination came about. This is wild. Lawyers for the plant suggested that Karen had purposefully stolen several small amounts of plutonium from her workplace and deliberately contaminated both herself and her apartment. Yes, you heard that correctly, this is what they argued. And why on earth would she do that? I'm just going to read you this quote from that timepiece, it's extraordinary. It said... Defence attorney William Paul argued last week that she was emotionally unstable and possibly had been affected by the use of tranquilizers. Paul said she had become deeply involved in a bitter fight between her union and the company and charged that she had set out to prove that the plant was dangerous by making herself seriously ill. She was, he suggested, kinky. 
Yep, that is what they came up with. Now, pretty much all of the thoughts that I had when I read this were in line with what Karen's family argued back, so let's go over that. In response to these claims, the family said that Karen was far too horrified by the plutonium contamination she had endured to have caused it herself. It seems to have been incredibly distressing to her, and I'm with them on this, she was far too intelligent to not understand the ramifications of this exposure to the element. I just think there's no way she would have contaminated herself just to prove a point. After all, it's widely accepted that she already had hard proof of her claims about the safety issues at the plant, so why on earth would she poison herself on top of this? It's totally illogical in my view. So if Karen didn't expose herself to the plutonium, who did? Her family admitted that they were totally unable to point a finger at anyone in particular. They had no clue who did it, but they believed it had been done by someone in order to scare her, and presumably try to keep her quiet. The family's lawyers also stated their intention to try and turn one of Kermagee's own arguments against them. If their case was that Karen had been able to slip some plutonium out of the plant without being caught, then firstly, that was a safety protocol breach in itself. But secondly, it also meant that any other person, possibly with nefarious motives, could have also done the same if their logic was to be followed. Also, Karen had already spoken up about her beliefs that plutonium was going missing, why would she risk then taking it herself? Above all, the family maintained that Karen was in possession of hard proof that the plant was operating unsafely, and that, in their opinion, her death had been a consequence of her work to try and expose it. Now from here, things get somewhat mysterious again. I've struggled to find out exactly what went down at the hearing, but I think it's safe to assume that everything I've just mentioned made up the bones of the arguments on both sides. What we do know about, however, is the outcome. At the end of the 1979 trial, the Silkwood estate was awarded $10.5 million for the quote, alleged inadequate health and safety program that led to Karen Silkwood's exposure. However, this was not the end of the matter. On appeal, this was later overturned, and her family were instead awarded just $5,000 for basically the loss of property Karen suffered when her apartment was cleaned up after her exposure. But eventually, in 1986, the family attempted one final retrial, and they ended up settling out of court, receiving a payment of $1.3 million from Kerr McGee. The caveat was, though, that the plant accepted no liability, hence deciding to settle out of court. And to this day, no charges, criminal or civil, have ever been brought about in direct relation to Karen's death. It officially remains classified as an accident, but in the eyes of many who have looked into this case over the decades, it's very much considered an unsolved, or at the very least, unclear mystery. In the years since Karen died, there have been entire books written about her story, exploring all kinds of conspiracy theories and cover-up claims and additional bizarre events stemming from the case. 
it's so, so tricky to try and substantiate a lot of these allegations. And as you know, I like to try and be as well researched as possible in our episodes. But if you'd like to delve more into things, I believe the books written about the case by Richard L. Rashka are a good place to start. And if this story sounds somewhat familiar to you, it might be because it inspired the 1983 film Silkwood, in which Meryl Streep portrayed Karen and earned both Oscar and BAFTA nominations for the role. Cher played Sherry Ellis and was also nominated for an Academy Award. I personally haven't seen the film yet, as I always try to stay away from dramatised accounts of the stories I cover until after I've put an episode together. Just so I'm able to try and keep to the facts and keep the facts straight in my head as much as possible. But as we approach the end of this tale, you might be wondering well, what happened to Kerr McGee and the plutonium plant? And the answer to that is fascinating in itself. What Karen had uncovered at her place of employment, or at least the questions her situation ended up raising, led to a huge amount of scrutiny of facilities like the Kermagee plant. The ripple effects were felt throughout the entire nuclear power industry, and a much closer eye was cast over things like safety and quality of products being produced in these factories. And just over 14 months after Karen's death, the Kermagee plant in Crescent closed, following one of its key clients refusing to renew their contract, claiming that the fuel rods were of a poor quality. Many have seen this as somewhat of a vindication of Karen's claims, and have taken it as proof that she really was onto something. Exactly what happened to her on the night of the 13th of November 1974, we will probably never know for sure. But whether you believe she was a whistleblower or a martyr, a victim or a person hell-bent on fighting for their cause, what there's little doubt about is that Karen Silkwood's story is as compelling as it is baffling, even almost 50 years on. Although her name will likely always have a question mark beside it, it will certainly not be forgotten. Well, I have so many thoughts. This topic is one that's been constantly mulling around in my head since I started looking into it. I feel so frustrated that we don't have many proper answers. My opinion, and I must stress that this is just my opinion, I am not stating it as fact, is that I find it hard to believe that her death was an accident. Whether another car caused her to swerve off the road or not, I have no idea. But the fact that those papers were missing afterwards is the only red flag I need. Because for argument's sake, let's say she didn't take them with her in her car that night. Why were they never found in her apartment or at the union meeting location or with a fellow union member? As I said, I also don't personally believe that Karen poisoned or contaminated herself with the plutonium either. It makes no sense based on her health-related anxieties and concerns. And when it comes to the quaaludes, could these have been prescription drugs she was taking? Possibly. Do I think she overdosed on them and crashed her car? I just find it hard to believe that she would do that. 
Again, she was a scientist. She would have known not to do that, especially before such an important meeting. Anyway, as always, I would love to know your take on this story. So do get in touch and let me know where you land on it. I'll have details of all the ways you can get in touch right after our outro feature. Here's Weird Media. Ooh, I have a treat for you with Weird Media today because this is a recommendation for one of the best TV shows I have watched all year, hands down. I think we ended up binge watching the whole series in two days and the show in question is The Fall of the House of Usher. It's on Netflix and it has a little tie-in to the podcast in a way as it's partially based on the works of Edgar Allan Poe, who I talked a lot about back in episode 19. It was created by Mike Flanagan, whose other series include The Haunting of Hill House and Blind Manor, as well as Midnight Mass and films like Gerald's Game and Doctor Sleep. By the way, he was literally born in Salem, which I think is incredibly cool, but anyway, back to the show. Without giving too much away, the basic premise of The Fall of the House of Usher is that there is this hugely wealthy family, the Ushers, headed up by the CEO of this huge pharmaceutical company, Roderick Usher. From the very beginning, we understand that a series of tragedies has befallen his family and that all six of his adult children have died within the space of two weeks. The whole story is kind of framed by Roderick sitting down in this dilapidated, creepy house, telling the whole tale to an assistant United States attorney who becomes a really significant character. I'm not going to say much more about the plot, but it's absolutely gripped me from the start. There are eight episodes and a couple of people I know who have watched it said they really got into it around episode three. So if you're not too sure at first, I'd recommend sticking it out until at least then, but I loved it. After we'd finished watching it, my husband and I both said basically the same thing, and that was that there was not one single weak link in the cast. Everyone was incredible and the acting was perfect. The characters were fascinating and there were so many references to Edgar Allan Poe in there. It was quite fun to try and spot as many as possible. It is a horror, so do be warned that there are some creepy moments and it does get quite gory too. So if that's not your cup of tea, it might not be the one for you. It's a limited series, so it's just those eight episodes. But in my opinion, the story is perfectly tied up in those eight installments. So if you are a fan of that self-contained mini-series format, this could be right up your street. And if you decide to check it out, I would be very interested to hear what you think of it. Okay, a few shout outs to the sources which helped in my research for today's story. There was that 1979 Time article I mentioned quite a bit. That was published by them on the 19th of March that year and it was so helpful. We had another Time piece, a more recent one this time. That was by Jennifer Latson from November of 2013. There was an article from the Los Alamos Science Journal from November 1995 all about the case, which had so much data and technical information in it, it was very useful indeed. 
we had a website piece from the Texas State Historical Association, plus an article on history.com from November 2009 about Karen's untimely passing. I originally found out about this story on the website list25.com in a piece all about some of the most mystifying deaths in history, and I firmly believe Karen's case earned its place on that list. So, as I mentioned, there are lots of ways you can get in touch. Over on Instagram, our handle is at Things Get Weird Podcast. And on Facebook, there's both the private discussion group and the main podcast page as well. Just search for Things Are About To Get Weird and they should both pop up for you. Our Twitter or X can be found at About To Get Weird. And our email address is thingsgetweirdpodcast at gmail.com. Always feel free to send me your strange but true experience stories especially if you'd be happy for me to include them in a future instalment of our mini-episodes, Weird Fix. I do think your stories would make brilliant additions to those episodes. Finally, our Patreon and merch pages are linked in the show notes, as always. Thank you so much for listening and for all of your support. I have some little goals in the back of my mind about how many Spotify ratings and Apple podcast reviews we can hit by the end of this year. So for a quick and simple way to help the podcast out totally free, leaving a quick rating or review wherever you listen is something I'd be so grateful for. Again, thanks for joining me today and I'll chat to you again next Wednesday in Weird Fix. So until next time, take care of yourself and others and keep it weird, but the good kind of weird. Thank you.